first reading is from Jeremiah 31. It's verses 27 to 40. And I think it's going to be up on the screen. Jeremiah 31 from verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more this is what the Lord says he who appoints the sun to shine by day who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar the Lord Almighty is his name only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out of the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. And our second reading is from Hebrews and we're reading... Chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Hebrews 9 from verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, Inner West. Good to be with you. And thank you for those who were at our annual meeting before. I know it was a blast. Uh, and this is going to be even more of a blast as we look at some pretty dense passages, as you probably picked up reading through them. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to just peel it apart a little bit and get to um, the heart of what God is saying to us uh, through Jeremiah. Um, I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word and particularly for this passage which gets us right into the heart of who you are and what you are doing and have done in this world and the good news of what Jesus has done. Uh, May we be attentive today to what you are saying to us by your spirit. Amen. Uh, Well, I've um, picked up a lot of great things from my dad. As I say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and uh, I've inherited some really great characteristics from him. Uh, But one thing that I could really have done without was that I am a chronic nail-biter. Now, you've all noticed it, so let's just not kid ourselves. I'm ashamed of it. Um, and I've tried to quit, I promise, really hard. I've used the disgusting varnish stuff. Um, I kind of grew to like it, which was um, unfortunate. Um, and I've, I once tried to put Band-Aids on all my fingers. And that kind of got gross, and so I, that didn't really work either. Um, and I, I've never been more motivated to quit as to when my biting has kind of gone past the nail into the cuticle, and then it's really painful, and once got infected, and that wasn't pretty. Um, and then when it happens, I go, that's it, no more, I'm going to quit, it's going to happen, I repent. <sighs> but pretty soon, maybe after a couple of weeks of good growth, I'm back to it again. Um, The reality is I've just grown to find too much comfort from this slightly disgusting habit. Um, What's the segue? The segue is that the kingdom of Israel and Judah (laughs) have for centuries been developing much worse habits than that. But interestingly, the pattern kind of remains the same. Um, They fall into sin. A prophet comes along and says, God's not happy, this is not good for you or for anyone else. And they repent and they come back to God's law and then after a little bit they fall back into the habit again and rinse and repeat. Until now, finally, God has had enough and he sends them into exile as um, a judgment and punishment. Um, Each time... Uh, that they fall into this cycle, what happens is that they go and worship other gods. These are the bad habits. And then someone will say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, religious freedom, religious pluralism, isn't that a good thing? That, or in some ways, maybe, yes. But in this case, um, the gods of the other nations just weren't good for them. Um, the problem was that they are, by nature, very immoral and unjust as cultures and as um, religions. And Israel's law, given to Moses, sat alone in the ancient world in providing for the weak and oppressed. Other nations, um, and the worship of these gods tied into it, valued things like strength, power, domination. Their gods were cruel and capricious and demanded heavy payments, even sometimes human sacrifice. And so as Israel got up, caught up in these habitual cycles of false worship, they began imitating um, these cultures. 
and it caused them to fall into immoral behavior and uh, ways of injustice. Now, I reckon, um, to some extent, this is a situation that we should resonate with because who hasn't been frustrated with their own bad behavior? Who hasn't been frustrated with their own habits of, of, of behavior that hasn't been good for us and good for other people? What about those sins that seem so characteristic of your life that just seem so hard to budge? And if you, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, aren't, doesn't everyone have behaviours that they would love to change? Or maybe you look at our human society going through the same old cycles of conflict and war and infighting and power plays, the powerful abusing the weak, neighbours turn against neighbours and just wish that we could change. Well, if you've ever been frustrated by any of those things, then Jeremiah 31 is the message we need to hear. It's a direct entry point to the Christian gospel, a message so revolutionary that it is unlike, completely unlike every other religion and philosophy that the world has ever seen. It's what can get us unstuck. It's what can get us renewed. To help us track through uh, this really important passage, uh, we're going to look at how God uh, gives us three things. He gives us a new heart, he gives us a new covenant, and he's building us a new city. Got that? New heart, new covenant, new city. So first of all, he gives us a new heart. Uh, some of you who have been around our church for a while um, have probably heard me talking about the heart before. Um, but it's worth talking about again because it's a really, really important image in the Bible. And it's one that can get a bit confusing um, and, and misinterpreted. Uh, in our culture, we often use heart to mean emotions. So if you uh, have your heart broken, it's, someone has caused you great pain. If you, uh, someone steals your heart, then... Somehow that's a positive thing, and uh, it means that you're kind of wrapped up in romantic feelings for a person. But some, um, something's actually changed in recent times. Um, people have started using heart in a slightly different way. So we say things like, follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. Look inside your heart. Uh, heart has come to mean... Uh, in some sense, the, our deepest desires, the things we want the most. And oddly enough, that's actually much closer to the Bible's definition of the heart. In Scripture, um, the heart is the core of the human being. It's the deepest part of you. It's the home of your deepest desires, commitments, and inclinations. And so it says in Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Parts of our culture and the Bible agree that the desires of the heart are the most powerful, formative part of a person. The difference then between our culture and the Christian message is whether or not the heart can be trusted. Can you trust those desires? 
In our world, it almost goes without saying that the only way to be a truly authentic, fulfilled person is by being free to pursue and express your desires. And so the assumption, of course, is that those desires are good, which is where the Bible takes a very different approach. It teaches that far from worthy of our trust, our desires are by nature corrupt and deceitful. Um, All the way back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 6, um, we see how the state of humanity is described. Um, Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord, God, saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Sin, that deep attitude of selfish pride that rebels against God has corrupted the human heart and as a result corrupted human behavior. And if left unchecked, our deepest desires simply won't bring fulfillment and happiness. Far from it, actually, it will bring destruction and pain. In Genesis, this is the diagnosis of the state of humanity. In Jeremiah... It's the summary of the state of God's people, Israel. In Jeremiah 17, um, Jeremiah says that Judah's sin is engraved on their heart with an iron chisel. And then in 17 verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The natural desires of the human heart according to Jeremiah, are not the solution to human problems. It's not the way to flourishing, the way to fulfillment. No, they are the problem, actually. If the heart by nature sets itself on selfish pursuits, then it's not long before the rest of ourselves fall in line. What do I mean by that? Well, Ashley Null, as a historian and theologian, puts it really well. He says, what the heart loves or desires... The mind justifies and the will chooses. What the heart loves or desires, the mind justifies and the will chooses. I can give you a very, very easy demonstration. I stand in the supermarket aisle and there before me spread out are chocolate bars. And I love chocolate bars. Picnics and Snickers, particularly. Uh, And my heart, (laughs) something deep within me, says, I will get comfort from that chocolate bar. My heart goes out to it. What happens next? My mind justifies that desire. It says, they just happen to be half price. They're always half price, but they're half price. (laughs) And I deserve a treat. It's been a long day, and... I have a great metabolism, probably won't make much of a difference. And then my will, jumping on the uh, heart and mind bandwagon, then says, well, I'll choose it then. And I reach out my hand and I grab a chocolate bar and there it is in my trolley. And I buy it and I consume it. The same pattern works, not just on fairly harmless things like chocolate, but on much worse things as well. 
say a person desires an attractive colleague. That person makes them feel good. Their mind says a little flirting won't hurt. And their will chooses, makes a decision to embark on the beginnings of what could become adultery. Another example, a person desires the security of having stable finances and feels drawn to not reporting some of their income on their tax return. The mind then says, no one will know. It will be a victimless crime. The government doesn't care. They've got plenty of money. And so they put zero in that income box. And even in exile, we find that Israel was still trying to justify their behavior in exactly the same way. A common saying, apparently, was the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Um, What does that mean? It says, we are innocent people paying for the crimes of previous generations. It's kind of like me saying, the the real person at fault for my biting my nails is my dad. It's his fault, not my fault. Of course, it's not his fault. (laughs) It's my fault. I have responsibility for my own actions. We are always responsible for our own actions under God, and so our sins cannot be justified, no matter how much our minds try, how much we believe that we can. Following your heart, in a sense, always comes at a cost. could be the cost of a broken marriage in the first instance, or the cost of a surprise audit by the ATO in the second Someone always pays the cost for our selfishness and pride, even if sometimes that someone is ourselves. So all of Jeremiah, the whole book has been setting up this great problem. Again and again, Jeremiah is saying, the thing that is driving Israel into sin and false worship, into immoral behaviors and actions, all of it is because of this problem of the heart. The heart is simply desiring the wrong things. And despite God's many miraculous acts of salvation, despite the whole history of Israel, despite him revealing the law which brings peace and justice, despite all the great heroes and prophets prophets who have been raised up to urge them to be faithful to God, the deepest inclinations of the thoughts of Israel's heart were still towards sin. Jeremiah again puts it starkly. He says, a leopard cannot change its spots and Israel cannot change its heart and yet the only way forward the only way that the story doesn't end here at Jeremiah is if the only way that that, that Israel can come out of exile the only way they can once again flourish as God's people is if they could be given new hearts And that's exactly the promise that God gives in verse 33. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now, in the past, there have been individual Israelites who have been able to say this. Some of the psalmists have been able to say, I delight in God's law. It is the deepest desire of my heart. It is written on my heart. But never has that been able to be said about all of Israel. And it's interesting that the the, the word heart here is actually singular. It's heart, the heart of Israel, not the hearts. 
It's a way of saying that God is going to make it so that anyone who joins God's people, any member, will have this renewed heart. They will have the law written on their hearts. How could this happen? Well, it would need to come by an act of God's love far greater than anything that had come before in the story. It would require a new covenant. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a solemn promise between two parties that benefit both parties. We don't use the term very much these days, but we still talk about a marriage covenant formalized in marriage vows of love and faithfulness to each other. And if you purchase property, you will probably enter into a covenant that restricts um, you on what you can do with the land. You get the land, but the, uh, the, the council, the area, benefits by you not building a dwelling that's 20 stories high um, or not building your house out of, I don't know, Play-Doh, for example. These things benefit everyone, right? And in the ancient world, covenants were common between rulers. One ruler would promise protection and security for generally like a a smaller nation, and the king of the smaller nation would promise fealty and taxes, called a vassal treaty, happened all the time. Uh, God makes covenants too. Famously, he made a covenant with Abraham. Um, promising that he and his descendants would become a great nation and would be a blessing to the world. His promise was that, they, that he would be their God, their protector and redeemer, comforter, father, source of life. And their promise was to be faithful to him, to worship him alone and obey his laws. Now we know what happened. God was faithful to his covenant. He held up his end of the agreement. But Israel did not. It was faithless many, many, many times. It's not that God made a mistake. The covenant with Abraham and Moses was not ill-conceived. It wasn't ever really meant to fix the great human problem. No, it was designed to point forward to something greater. It was designed to show who God is, that he is loving, but he is also fiercely holy. And it it had to show what God desired from his people, that they reflect his heart and that they be people of love and justice and goodness. And it was designed to show what was necessary to forgive sins, that if the punishment for sin was death, then something would have to die, in this case, a spotless animal, like a lamb or a dove. But it was also designed to show that external laws and rituals, even ones that come from God, are not enough to change the heart of a nation. Even God's own miraculous rescue in Exodus, taking them by the hand, leading them out of Egypt, wasn't enough to change, ultimately, their behavior. But actually, we still think it's enough. We still think that if we can only find the right guidelines or laws or rules or patterns, then we will be made enough. It will be enough to cleanse our consciences. In fact, we've kind of made a business out of it, or businesses. 
fitness fads, diet trends, celebrity role models, political causes, social media campaigns, educational philosophies, economic theories, the alt-right and the woke left. What do they all have in common? They're all attempts to feel like we are on the side of goodness, on the side of rightness, that we're in some ways clean. St. Augustine, one of the giants of Christian theology, observed that by nature our hearts are restless. Uh, that is, they flit from one thing to another, putting their, resting their desire on it in hopes that maybe this thing will give us peace. But all it is really is just an exhausting chasing after the wind. It's futile. And the Old Testament was no mistake. And we should read the Old Testament. We should read about the Old Covenant uh, because it was put in place to point to something better. It was put in place so that we might recognize the thing that will be something better. And so God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. In the past, and, um, there were great kings and prophets and priests who stood in the gap between God and God's people. They mediated the relationship. But something astounding is coming. There will be a time when every individual person would be able to know God personally. Not being mediated by a priest or a pastor or a minister or a holy person. No, we would know God. Know, is, um, in this sense, is, uh, represents the most intimate relationship possible, like that of a, of a spouse, or a brother and sister, or a father and child, or mother and child. Every day, ordinary people relating on a daily basis, personally, with a holy, righteous God. Nothing in the middle. Or it gets better. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This relationship uh, wouldn't be based on the people's ability to get themselves right. No, the relationship would rest on God's ability to remain unchanging. You got that? Not resting on our ability to get ourselves right, but on God's ability to not change be unchanging. Verse 37, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Now as Christians I think we can easily take this for granted. Uh, this idea that we are forgiven, right? It's kind of fundamental to our faith. But Jeremiah's readers would have been stunned because they knew that forgiveness does not come without cost. They knew forgiveness does not come without sacrifice. And so they might be wondering, what kind of sacrifice could pay for all the sins that we've ever committed? We need sacrifices every year to keep that up. What kind of, sin, what kind of sacrifice could be at the heart of this new covenant? It doesn't make sense. Well, we find out. Uh, in English, uh, we read in, in our Bibles that 
uh, probably that God would make a covenant in these passages. Um, in Hebrew, the word is cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. It's a reference to how covenants were bloody things. Not bloody things, bloody things. Genesis 15. Back to Abraham. God appears and, and tells Abraham to go and get a bunch of random animals and slice them in half. Sounds horrifying and weird, but really interesting that Abraham doesn't bat an eyelid. He just does it. Because he knows what's going on. And see, in those days, if a covenant was made between two rulers, um, then the two kings, the two rulers, would cut some animals in half, and each, uh, both the kings would together walk through between the pieces. Why? Well, it's a very, uh, uh, very kind of obvious and evocative and scary way of saying um, that if either of us break this covenant, then may it be to us as to these animals. It's about the, uh, uh, the consequences of breaking the covenant. It's a way of saying, if I break my vow, this is what should happen to me. Really thankful that we don't do that at weddings. It would really ruin the dress. Now, in the Bible, a covenant always goes with a bloody symbol. Blood represents life. And a fulfilled covenant is a better life, and a broken one means a life is on the line. And as I said before, there is always a price for people who follow their hearts and break God's law. Someone has to pay the price. Someone has to be torn in two. Now, Abraham knows what to expect. He's expecting that God, somehow God himself and Abraham, are going to walk through the pieces. And so what happens next just must have floored him. Because suddenly, a dread darkness falls down. It's thick and black. And in the midst of a darkness, this, uh, this um, torch, blazing torch, appears, symbolizing God, the presence of God. And the torch goes through the middle of the pieces. And Abraham is left standing there, told to do nothing. What? God alone walked through the pieces, so God alone is promising to pay the price if Israel is unfaithful. He's saying, I will be torn in two if you break the covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about is not new because it's totally different from the old. No, the covenant is still between God and humans, for men and women to be made part of his people and for him to be their redeemer and protector. And what was new about the new covenant was how it would be signed and sealed with an act of love far, more, far greater and more costly than ever before. It would be signed and sealed again by God himself saying, I will be torn in order to fulfill this covenant. So no wonder at the Last Supper, Jesus took a cup of wine, and I wish we were having communion today. I could show it. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
And as he hung on the cross mere hours later, a dread darkness fell once again as the Son of God was torn and bloodied for us. The new covenant has been made, it's been ratified in the blood of Christ. And as he rose from the dead, his life flooded into the lives of those united with him by faith. And isn't it interesting that only a few days later, again, torches of fire came down, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, this time like tongues of fire onto the believers at Pentecost. And for the first time, a people were formed whose deepest inclinations and desires and delights of their hearts was towards God. The law was written on their hearts. For the first time ever, Genesis 6 wasn't true anymore for a people. Their inclinations were turned towards God. Their desires were turned towards God. Now, we know that we're still drawn towards selfish desires, right? So what does it mean for us to have new hearts? Well, it means to have a new power at work in you, the Holy Spirit. It means being able to do whatever, uh, to do what without God we could not do. Let's resist sin. It means having the thing so many people are desperate for, the ability to change, to change for the better. Christians are far from perfect, it's true, and, but that tells us something. It tells us that within there's a battle between two opposing forces, what Paul would later call the flesh and the spirit, two opposing forces tearing at the heart. It's a battle to decide where we will direct our desires and put our trust. The good news is that that battle has been won and is being won by the Holy Spirit, all the more and ever more conforming us to be more like Jesus, who always desired God and put him first. Now, this has some big implications. Um, we have never thought our way into sin, <laughs> so we will never think our way into godliness. Learning about God, filling our mind with the Bible is totally essential, but by itself not sufficient to change our lives. When Adam and Eve looked at the, at the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what they, they saw it was beautiful, it was attractive to them. Their desire, their hearts went out to it. And that's what sin is. It's a beautiful lie. It's one we want to believe. And so the only way to truly turn from our sinful habits is to have our hearts captured by something more beautiful. The ultimate end of all that we do as Christians is to encounter the glory of God and be transfixed by it. I'm not talking about some sort of spiritual high or kind of emotional experience. I'm actually talking about what the Bible calls hope, what Jeremiah calls hope. To be in every season, whether we are happy or sad, celebrating or grieving, deeply inclined towards God. To be people whose hearts find rest in God. Who understand that no ritual or rite can make us clean because we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And there is nothing that can stir our hearts and change our hearts, capture our hearts more than the gospel. Nothing else can undo our most deeply ingrained sinful habits. Now, it's not that external and physical rules aren't worthwhile, by the way. Um, if you were an alcoholic, 
don't hang around bottle shops. If you struggle with porn, then use accountability software. If you feel drawn towards a lifestyle of greed, then find someone to encourage you to be generous. If you struggle to make good life decisions, as Robin talked about before, find people to speak into that. If you enjoy gossip a little bit too much, don't hang out with gossipy people. <laughs> External things are wise and good to help change us, but by themselves they are not sufficient to truly change the deepest parts of us. No, we change when our hearts are locked onto how Jesus is more beautiful and better than anything that these false worship can give us more comforting, more pleasurable, more acceptance, more hope. And the final piece of the puzzle actually is that we're not called to do it alone. Jeremiah finishes here by imagining a new city, a new Jerusalem, rebuilt. And, and it was rebuilt under Nehemiah, but destroyed again by the Romans. So He's talking about a city that doesn't get torn down. It's a picture of the people of God together, a community of people with renewed hearts, where any member has the law written on their hearts, and together they chase after Jesus. And God is building that city. He's building it amongst us, this community. As we come under the Bible's authority, as the Spirit is with us, as we speak the gospel to each other, then we find that the the sin is shown up for the hideous thing it is, and Jesus is shown up for the beautiful thing he is. And so we become not just lights to each other, but lights even in a darkened world that longs to change, but finds that it cannot. May we be built, may we be built into that kind of city, that kind of community. Let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you so much for this word. Um, we need it because we need to change and we need to see the deepest parts of us renewed and transformed. May we be the sort of community that doesn't just learn about you, but we behold you, we experience you. We see how you are beautiful to us. And may that be so much the case that sin becomes less beautiful, may it diminish in our minds as you, as you grow and as you um, take hold of us. And may we help each other, Father, as a community of people who believe in the gospel, who trust in it, and all the more as we talk to each other about it. So, Father, make us into that kind of people, we pray. Amen. I'll give us a couple of minutes to... Uh, let that sink in. And if you've got a question, you could send it through and I might have time to answer one or two before we um, sing again. I'll be back. Um, the question is, as Christians, should we expect our heart desires to be innately sinful or now holy because of the Spirit in us? How do we discern the nature of our desires? It's a really good question, and it's um, one that's baffled theologians, actually, and different people have come up with different answers. It's interesting um, 
that the Bible, when it comes to Christians, uh, calls us both holy and being made holy. Or to use other, uh, other words, sanctified and also being sanctified. So somehow, um, uh, from, a, from God's point of view, he treats us as if we are as innocent, holy and clean as Jesus is. Right? That's how he considers us, treats us, because we are in Christ, right? In Christ. So what, how, how Christ is is how um, God considers us to be. Uh, but it's also true that we, um, the Bible says, are being sanctified, that we are being transformed, or um, as Paul puts it, being conformed to the image of Christ. So that the, uh, what is, um, uh, how God considers us will one day also be uh, totally true of us. And this is part of the problem of being in the now and not yet, the, the time between Christ's two comings, the first and the second coming. Um, so it's really hard. It's a really tough one to explain. But I think it's true um, that because we have the Holy Spirit in us, it is increasingly possible for us, for our desires to flow out of our hearts and be moved by nature almost, new nature, towards God. Right? We, as humans, we're just designed to look for comfort and acceptance and security and value and belonging, right? We, we just, we, it's just how we're wired. We desire those things. And I think increasingly as, as Christians, as we um, come and explore the gospel and have it, uh, and find Jesus beautiful and the gospel beautiful, the death of Jesus and, or, and how grace is so wonderful and amazing, that as those desires come out, they, they get diverted in that direction. But there will be some that won't. There will be some that will come out and will be torn, actually, and I, I feel it every day when my desire for acceptance um, pops up and it's tempting for it to be um, moved towards something that's not God. Um, now, that's why we have forgiveness, because when it happens, um, we can go to God and find forgiveness and, and assurance that that won't condemn us. And then God can actually use that moment so that to, to reveal to us why that was damaging to us in the first place when that acceptance was put on something um, false that won't help us. And so we can, God uses that as a sanctifying moment so that next time it happens, maybe we'll be a bit more inclined towards God. And so God grows us. Um, even our bad things, even our sins in God's economy can be used for our good in that way.